This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, listeners, for spending 30 minutes of your precious time with us as we break down for you the important issues confronting America today. This week, we will talk about the politics of American newspaper with the Duke of Atlantic City, award-winning newspaper columnist Martin DeAngelis, formerly of the Atlantic City Press. Hello, Martin. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Jerry. How's it going? It's doing all right. Um, I want you to get to weigh in on the demolition of Donald Trump's casino in Atlantic City, your your town, last week, and also the death of a conservative uh, talk show legend, uh, Rush Limbaugh. But before we get to that, I had to tell you, share a funny story. So I went into Barnes & Noble this week and uh, was looking for a book that I couldn't find. So I pulled the store manager aside and said, hey, can you help me find this book? So as she's trying to help me, she's muttering, them Democrats, them Republicans. So I'm saying, what, you know, what's the matter? She said, the Democrats come in here and they bury the Republican books and put the Democrat books in front of it. Then the Republicans come in and they put the Democrats book behind and put their, their Republican books in front of it. So I was, I was laughing pretty good. Well, let's get to it. Uh, newspaper World shocked rocked this week when Tribune Publishing, the uh, owner of the Chicago Tribune and many other major papers, announced that it had agreed to sell its publishing industry and company to Alden Global Capital, a hedge fund that's been trying to take over that company. And a lot of outcry uh, from reporters who are seeing financial services um, companies become more involved in newspapers. I had worked at the Baltimore Sun, the Morning Call, and the Orlando Sentinel, which were all Tribune newspapers, and the um, the social media was going crazy with uh, people uh, complaining about it. Um, you were at the Atlantic City Press when Berkshire Hathaway took over the Atlantic City Press, and that was Warren Buffett's um, financial services company. Tell me what that was like back then. Well, back then, we didn't notice it at first. It was 2013, I believe, and and they came in saying no salary cuts and no staff cuts. Uh, By four years later, though, um, I was a staff cut. Uh, I was, uh, uh, I got retired um, uh, in in March of, or April of uh, 17. Uh, I was one of a, a dozen or so people in the company. Since then, there have been three more, I believe, waves of layoffs. Um, Less than four years later, I hardly recognize any of the names I see in in my local newspaper anymore. After, and I worked there for 32 years, but I barely know anybody who's there. and uh, Berkshire Hathaway has since sold out um, to Lee Enterprises, which owns the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and, and a bunch of other newspapers, and has kept cutting. Um, I, was, I was looking at some of their history, and it's cuts, cuts, cuts. Uh, it, it's 
It's sad. Well, it's kind of interesting because I think that's the worry of this Alden taking over Tribune, which was it's probably you know one of the major publishers in the United States, great history going back to the 1800s. And that is the fear that these hedge funds come in, they bleed the newspaper, and then they sell them off. And, um, you know, it's a money-making adventure. And, you know, with Alden, they issued a, a statement this week saying, this is going to be great for local journalism, but they've owned the Denver Post and just slashed uh, – the hell out of that and so i think the fear among everyone around here is, is that is going to happen what does this tribune agreement with alden signal to you to me is more of the sad demise of uh local news uh they uh the the company that owns the the denver post uh they're uh they have a particularly bad reputation uh for just Cutting and trying to make money uh, and and leaving a, a carcass. Uh, so I, I I look back at some of the history of newspapers I know. Uh, we met at the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer, going on forty years ago now. Thanks, Martin. Thanks a lot. <laughs> I look at. The, the, at their history, they sold in uh, 2006, I believe, uh, for $515 million. Six years later, they sold for $55 million. And the latest uh, incarnation of that, um, they sold to a, a, uh, a, a, a nonprofit uh, took over, and the former owners gave the nonprofit $25 million to run it, run the newspaper, but also basically to take it off their hands. Uh, it's a downward spiral. You know, back then when you and I were at the Inquirer, that was like we were interns coming out of college. And I think back, back then newspapers majors were making about 20% profit. And, and I think uh, at the time, like ExxonMobil was happy to get 5%. So um, why do you think this is happening now where these financial services companies are coming in and taking over newspapers? I think the, the finance people are in it because because of the bargains uh, they, they see, but um, they, you know, they think that they should be able to make those kind of profits like newspapers did in the old days, and it's just not happening. Yeah, so, um, you know, we, we, you talked about the steep decline in the industry, the free fall. A uh, quarter of the newspapers in America, mostly weeklies, are shutting, have shut down since 2004. And I think even a, a more alarming statistic is the elimination of half of the newspaper jobs across the country. And um, as you say, it has impacted local journalism, the covering of the local boards that we had to do uh, when we first started out and when we were worked at the Gloucester County Times together. And um, I, you know, I, I, there's a lot of reasons for it. I mean, it's the, the newspapers never found a way to make money off the internet. Um, and then Craigslist and all these uh, places like eBay, and they, they took away the, the advertising dollars, which were um, the lifeblood of the industry at the time. So uh, one of the things we're noticing too is that newspapers seem to have resorted back to the old 
old days, you know, with Joseph Pulitzer and Randolph Hearst, who, of course, the great movie Citizen Kane was made about and his political influence. And they they were they were big, big papers and big controllers. Now we have guys like Jeff Bezos owning the Post, uh, billionaire doctor owning the L.A. Times. Are these guys having the same political influence, do you think? I think that's why a lot of them get into it. They they want to be bigger players in their world than they are. Um, you know, I, Bezos is, is a very interesting case. I mean, he, he has all the money in the world and um, he, he's actually increased the the staff at the Washington Post. And I, I think I think they're up to a thousand uh, newsroom employees. Um, you know, and he's famously fought with the, uh, the former president, or at least the former president fought with him, uh, over the post coverage, but, but, um, you know, the, the local, uh, rich guys get into it thinking that they can, can become even more influential in, in their area than they are. And, um, Bezos, uh, the Washington Post being a, a national newspaper, Bezos can be even more nationally influential than, than he is already, which is uh, very much so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Amazon is gigantic. And I guess it, you know, this is just another tool for him, in a sense, to uh, to make that even more profitable. I don't know about that. And and the uh, I did see that uh, I'm sure you've seen Marty Barron, the uh, editor of The Washington Post, uh, is retiring. Uh, he's a, sort of a legend in the business. He was the uh, Boston Globe editor, uh, when they were uh, exposing the uh, all the uh, abuse by Catholic priests in the, in the Boston diocese. Yeah, that turned into the movie Spotlight. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So, so he got yeah. to be a famous name. Um, but he swears at the Post that he barely ever has talked to Be- that he barely ever talks to Jeff Bezos. That Bezos leaves his hands off the. The um, the newsroom, the the news end of things, which is the traditional church state model. The uh, the uh, the business end doesn't get, wall. get to tell yeah, the, the wall. Right. Yeah. The, the business side doesn't get to tell the news side what to do. Um, and he swears that that Bezos has been good to that um, that tradition, that that sacred tradition. Uh, but I don't I don't know that other uh, all these other owners are as uh, savvy or as dedicated to that. That's a good uh, that's a good word for it. Sacred. And um, so what, you mentioned something interesting. So the Washington Post has a thousand uh, people. Um, I was talking to a buddy at The New York Times. I think he said they had sixteen hundred. So here are these major newspapers are really taking control of the market. Um, where does that leave these local papers? Where does that leave an Orlando Sentinel and uh, Allentown Call? Where does that leave them in this? Um, I don't know. I mean, is it is it weakening their voice? Um, when these giant papers just get bigger? I don't think the one affects the other so much, but the growth of the big newspapers is going on at the same time. The, these, the other newspapers are getting cut to the bone. And, and it does leave a void at a time 
when you see the importance of journalism, when, when you see the, the, the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, you know, exposing major scandals in the former administration, you know, years of that. Um, but there's nobody left or there's hardly anybody left to do that in the in the in the small towns or the smaller markets where the smaller newspapers have been decimated. So you understand the importance of journalism at a time when local journalism is in danger of of going away, or at least um, being a, a shell of its former self. Right. Um, the Baltimore Sun, my old paper, was able to escape the Tribune um, agreement because um, they started a campaign called Save Our Sun. They saw the Alden deal come along. They saw the hedge fund come along. So they started a, a public campaign called Save Our Sun. This week, a hotel owner um, agreed to buy the paper and he's going to form a nonprofit. The Inquirer, where, as you said, we met, um, has now been run by a nonprofit. And uh, I think they're able to make about 4%, not the 20% they used to make. But what is the impact of these nonprofits owning newspapers, do you think? Uh, that's to be determined. Um, I, I hope it's going to be um, positive. But I think the problem with, with all of them is that Newspapers always lived on the advertising money more than the circulation. And only a few, only those major players, the the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, have found a way to make money online. Um, the irony of all this is, I, as I understand it, they still get tons of readers. They just get readers online. And online, the advertising sells for a tiny fraction of what a print ad sells for. So back to the nonprofit owners, I, I hope the foundations and the nonprofits find a way to make enough money to stay in business. Uh, and, and maybe if, if you don't have investors, um, you know, saying, where, where's my money? Where's, where's the uh, return on my investment? Um, then that will allow journalism to still stay in, in business and stay alive or longer. But it's, it's a new concept and it's not yet a proven winner, let's say. Right. Um, and, um, you know, you, when you and I started out, I mean, we worked as interns at the Inquirer and they said, hey, you can't be a reporter. You couldn't move up like the old days. You had to go out and get five years experience and you couldn't get on the big papers without that. Now papers are hiring kids out of college. I know the sun is taking a lot of people from Maryland and things like that, and they can pay them less. Um, they could work them to death. Uh, does that inexperience have an impact? do you think? I think certainly it does. Um, you know, you can grow in those jobs, um, as we saw. Um, but, you know, it, it certainly helps to have veteran reporters with local knowledge, with that, you know, institutional knowledge of who's who in the city and in, in, the, in the state. And just knowing how things run uh, can truly help somebody not um, get um, lied to and played for a sucker and other uh, dangers of being a, a young 
newspaper uh, reporter. Right. So when you look at the future of newspapers and there are people who say, hey, they're going to go the way of the old blockbuster video movie stores, uh, what do you see? What do you see in the future of American newspapers? Uh, I, I mean, I, I think obviously it's going to go more online. Uh, I hope that um, people find a way to get some money out of that so, so they can um, keep paying salaries, keep paying living wages. Um, you know, uh, newspapers uh, have, have always uh, have they always paid poorly, relatively poorly. Uh, my wife is a, a teacher and she makes a lot more as a teacher than I ever got close to as a as a newspaper reporter. Um, but I think that that the owners now are paying even a fraction of what of the little that I used to make <laughs> before I, I got laid off. Yes. Um, yes. So, I mean, you know, you need you need the news and you need people to generate the news. Um, and you need to pay those people because they have to eat and pay rent and mortgages and everything too. So, um, I hope it, uh, I hope it turns itself around, but so far the, the turnaround is still, um, a goal and not a reality. You know, one of the things that, um, you know, you and I, we go and we see old colleagues and everybody stands around and says, oh, the newspaper industry is it wasn't it what it was. And remember this guy and remember that guy and oh, they got laid off. But there's still some great work being done out there. And I think um, that is to me is the most admirable thing is that there are people still out there doing doing the job and you know you and i knew richard ben kramer who was a wonderful he won the pulitzer prize and he was also a great author and he used to he used to call journalism the lord's work and there and there's it to me to see people still out there doing it is very admirable and i i think of the baltimore sun so the sun won the pulitzer i want to say maybe two years ago three years ago they they ran the mayor out of office in a in a wonderful scandal called healthy holly which was a beautiful name for it she was selling children's books to people who are getting contracts with the state. So it, it, it's still being done out there. And um, to all those people, um, you know, I commend. You had a big incident in your uh, big event in your city this week with the implosion of the Trump Plaza. And uh, you covered Donald Trump way before he became a political dynamo uh, back in the day in Atlantic City. Uh, what was it like covering him back then? You know, he, he was the the ultimate egotist. He he wanted um, he wanted his name on everything. I mean, he wasn't Atlantic City wasn't unique, but uh, he was unique in Atlantic City. Uh, he he put his name on everything and um, was always bragging about how it was the the best and the greatest and the. Um, you know, the most beautiful and um, you just shook your head and, and laughed at the guy um, because, you know, he, he was so over the top with his egotism and, and uh, it still makes me shake my head to know that he took that act national and, and, and 
people bought it. Did he have running with you guys like he did with the press um, in uh, the national press? I mean, can you remember, you know, kind of button heads with him or him picking on you or anything like that? I used to write a column that would make fun of him. Like, as an example, he had um, he had the Trump Plaza, the one they just knocked down. There was a uh, an adjacent casino that he took over at one point. So he so his place was called the Trump Plaza. Then the the building that he took over had been uh, the Atlantis and that went bankrupt and Trump bought it and it became the Trump World's Fair at Trump Plaza. He, he, he wanted to use the same operating license to run two casinos. So it became a division of the, the plaza. So it was the Trump World's Fair at Trump Plaza. And then there, at, at the top of the escalator, when you got to the casino, was a giant portrait. I, it was, I'm telling you, it was eight feet wide by 12 feet, 12 feet tall, something like that. I would, I would love to know where this, I'd love to know where this picture is. So I would, in, in my column, I would always refer to it as the Trump portrait at the Trump World's Fair at Trump Plaza. <laughs> Um, uh, so, so anyway, I, I, I made fun of him The the one time that he, he tried to come after me was, um, he was, he, he set up a, or, or, I mean, the marketing people set up, it was going to be a, a one-on-one -on -one basketball game between this, this shows how far we're going back between, uh, Shaquille O'Neal and uh, Hakeem Olajuwon, two two great basketball players, but they were going to play one on one in Atlantic City, and um, they they send out all their marketing, um, you know, uh, hype, uh, and and they quote Trump saying, uh, you know, this is this will be the greatest sporting event in the history of Atlantic City, and I just went off and said, you know, that's that's nonsense. Atlantic City has hosted. Um, title fights, um, you know, Mike Tyson used to fight in Atlantic City, Larry, uh, uh, Evander Holyfield, these, these guys, um, you know, there have been great sporting events in Atlantic City and a, and a made up one on one basketball game is not going to be the greatest event. And he like apparently went ballistic because the um, the local casino president comes to my boss and, and like threatens, like, you know, is, is this guy, has this guy ever uh, taken money? Has he, you know, has he get free meals and, and, um, and, you know, I, I didn't do any of that stuff. I, I never took anything from anybody. I'm, I'm happy to say I kept my vows of uh, chastity here. And, um, it, it, you know, it, it was, uh, it, they would always go to the, you know, oh, well, we know you're, we know you, um, you owe us something. And uh, he was, he was always trying to work the refs to get better coverage. And uh, so, yeah, he, he battled the press here. He, he, I don't ever remember him using the enemy of the people uh, phrase he popularized, but um, I think he truly believed that. Yeah, so he was a he was a kill the messenger guy, and he knew that he knew that uh, tool from the beginning. Like just try to just try to kill the messenger and and that kind of thing. So, what did you go down to see the building come down this week at all? I did not. I forgot that it was happening, and I could hear it 
when the explosion happened and I could see a cloud of dust rising over the skyline, but I did not see it happening. It was impressive. What did it mean to you to see this thing imploded by dynamite and left in a heap of dust and rubble? What did that mean to you kind of having been there and covered this stuff? Progress in Atlantic City is, uh, you know, sometimes it involves getting rid of the old. I, I, I happen to know a a basketball coach. The Atlantic 10 um, uh, college conference used to have uh, its annual, uh, you know, March tournament in Atlantic City. And the the college coach I knew, this is going back years, this is going back more than 10 years, said that he could not bring his team to stay at Trump Plaza because it was in such bad shape. And that's despite the fact that the plaza was literally attached to the building where the tournament uh, was held, uh, what's now called Boardwalk Hall. They they have they have sky you know skywalk connections between the two buildings. He said the the building going back 10, 12 years was in such bad shape. The plaza was in such bad shape that he couldn't have college kids staying there. Mm. Uh, I remember some of the places where I used to stay in college, and you know they were not uh, <laughs> they were not. Uh, Fancy hotels, let's say. So apparently the place was awful. But what was Trump's impact on Atlantic City? I mean, I remember being in Philly and, you know, Atlantic City gambling is going to save Atlantic City. What was his particular impact on the city, if he had any? Uh, He probably made the um, reputation of the place worse because he managed to lose money in a business where it's designed to make the house money. He went bankrupt in everything he ran in Atlantic City. And, and actually, he, I mean, to, to clarify, he didn't own the, the Trump Plaza anymore when it was knocked down. He hadn't really owned anything in Atlantic City for, for years um, because he, he went bankrupt here and, and had to get out. Um, but, you know, and. He also badmouthed Atlantic City on the way out. Uh, so, no, uh, not Donald was, Trump. Was, no, geez, <laughs> oh man. You Donald. have to believe me on this, uh, even though that does sound shocking that he could have <laughs> anything bad to say about it. I was shocked because uh, you and I do know Atlantic City. I was very surprised that when he was running for president, uh, the media didn't go to Atlantic City to see what he had done in Atlantic City. I mean, there were, you know, some small stories about, um, you know, contractors, you know, small businesses that he sued or maybe paid 10 cents on a dollar to. Do you think his political rise nationally was just too quick for people to get to Atlantic City and say, hey, wait a minute, this is what this guy did here? You know, some media tried to... Uh to do those stories, um, you know, there were there were years of uh, suits over over him stiffing contractors who had done the work to make the most beautiful, the most uh, opulent casino that he always bragged about, and, and he he paid him ten cents on the dollar. I mean, I honestly think that that a lot of people just didn't take him seriously, and that's that's why. It, you know, they never thought there was a chance that people were buying his his routine. But as we saw, they did. So, yeah, I mean, maybe it was the, the sudden rise. Uh, but but I, I think that there was always an aspect of disbelief to it that uh, somehow came true. Uh, he did sell his brand 
to obviously millions and millions of voters uh, because they they elected him. And speaking of routines, uh, the death we had the death of Rush Limbaugh this week, and um, you know he was an interesting guy. Obviously, a legend in radio for you know taking in you know good or bad depending on what side of the fence you're on. But um, he um, he he came off to me as a as a performer. He you know someone described him this week as a uh, cross between a stern lecturer and a um, you know political what villain. And um, you know I, I I remember you know being a reporter in Allentown and the tax collector would always pull me into his office and say, Hey, you gotta listen to this guy. You gotta listen to this guy. And I I I'd stay and there were some pretty funny bits. And I always saw him as kind of the bad guy in wrestling. You know, he he was the bad guy in the wrestling match, and I think he he did have kind of a shtick, but um, he did have a, a a pretty nasty impact on the political world in the sense that um, it wasn't a joke that he was ridiculing blacks, he was ridiculing gays, he was calling women who were outspoken feminazis. Um, he really did plant the seeds of you know, what is called grievance politics, which sprouted into the Trump movement and eventually ended up in the storming of the Capitol. Um, what do you think of Limbaugh? Uh, I, I was not a fan. Uh, I don't believe in uh, speaking ill of the dead, but he, uh, he um, you know, there's a, there is a straight line, I, I would say, from um, you know the him stirring up people on the right to uh, to that storming of the to Trump to the storming of the Capitol, and you know I, I think that that straight line includes um, you know not a lot of uh, not a lot of need for facts just uh, just uh, you know getting people you know selling them what you're what you're trying to sell and getting them to um, to do what you want him to do, um, uh, so uh, you know he 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 had a huge influence. I, I am not questioning that, but I, I can't say that it was a real positive influence. And it's very interesting because um, you were kind of on the forefront of this kind of trash talking radio, TV thing, and um, you know this bloomed because Ronald under Ronald Reagan there was the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine, which required broadcasters to provide free airtime to respond to con controversial opinions. Uh, with by removing that, it, it was just kind of a free fall. But what was interesting is Limbaugh succeeded on the radio a guy by the name of Morton Downey. Jr. And people will probably remember him, Cigarette. And, you know, he was just a real abrasive guy. But you had a, an incident where you actually had to go up and cover the Morton Downey show. Tell us about that. Before, um, you know, the the Atlantic City Press uh, shrunk as much as it did, they would send us to, to places around the state or and they'd send us to national conventions uh, back in the old days of newspapers, uh, having staffs and spending money. Um, and they, uh, my editor at the time sent me up to Fort Lee, I believe it was, to cover the uh, taping of this show by Morton Downey Jr. And it, it you know, he was the uh, the one of the first of the people who would like, you know, try to get fist fights started on his show, and uh, <laughs> you know, I I don't think there was an actual fist fight on the the. Uh, day I went up there, 
but it, it was it was a zoo. It, I mean, it was people shouting at each other, and and he was you know leading the the shouting, and and you know you saw it was all a shtick. He 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 tried to argue that he was he was uh, you know being uh, serious about uh, the issues of the day, but he was you know trying to get people riled up, and uh, you know for a while there he did. It was uh, you know he. But but I guess that led to Jerry Springer and uh, you know all these other shows where you know the family members try to try to you know punch each other out and uh, it was uh, it was a it was a show. So that that's kind of cool. I mean, cool and not in a super good way. But I mean, the fact that you were <laughs> you were seeing the seeds planted for this whole movement, this whole alt right movement, and. Um, yeah, and then as we said, we we've seen kind of where where it's gone, and it'll be interesting to see where it goes, and particularly what role um, your buddy Trump plays in all that. But I want to thank you for being on, my friend. It was great talking to you. Always great catching up with you, and uh, you got a lot of experience, and we we appreciate you uh, sharing that with us. Thank you for having me. It's been it's been fun talking about the all this, and. Uh... I will. Uh, we will keep talking, and and I hope we we. It's not always about the uh, the downsides of uh, American newspapers and politics. Yeah, I'm with you, brother. I'm with you. We would like to thank our executive producer Mike Gugat, our technical producer Brad, maybe the Wizard of Pods, our announcer Dave, and our voice talent John One Take Terzis, the voiceover Tampa Bay. You can help us greatly by writing a review on Apple Podcasts. In addition letting your friends know about the podcast and please reach out to me directly on email at retailpoliticspodcast at gmail.com with any thoughts, questions, or episode topics, anything you want to hear us talk about. We'd love to hear from you. We will be back next week with another thrilling edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. Until then, always remember, read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career, covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.